I want to let you know that yesterday I got a message from my Duke doctor, and uh, my results came back from my test, and everything is clear. And so, very thankful for that. Um, I wasn't expecting to get a message from on Saturday afternoon, but uh, I wasn't upset, you know, get that. Um, All right. Well, this year we've been going through the story of the Bible, and I've associated three numbers to understand the story, three, four, and five. Do you remember this? So three loves, four parts, and five are statements that kind of put meat on the bones uh, that, uh, that help us understand basically what it means to be a Christian. So here are the five statements, and I hope by the end of the year you've learned these, and hopefully um, maybe they're getting down into your DNA. So God has always had a people. He's always been building his church, number one. Number two, evil is real, but it never gets the last word. Three, grace. God initiates, pursues, and saves. Four, he did it. Jesus actually accomplished something in his life and death and resurrection. And five, everything is moving toward Jesus. Everything in your life, everything in history, every current event, every problem you have, everything is moving toward Jesus. So remember those five statements, and hopefully they will help you understand more and more about your life and how the Bible speaks into it. As we're looking at the book of Revelation together, remember the point of the book is this. God always finishes what he starts. He always finishes what he starts. That's the point of Revelation. And I hope that as you heard those five statements, that you realize that hope is kind of built into each of those five things. Whether it's talking about evil, it's real, but it never gets the last word, or whether Everything's moving toward Jesus. Hope is built into the story of Scripture, to the reality that God finishes what it starts, to the reality of those five statements. Hope is built into all of it. And so for these next three weeks, as we look at Revelation 21 and 22, for three weeks, we're going to think about this idea of hope together. And so listen to what I'm going to read you from Revelation 21 and 22. This is pretty amazing stuff. The first 11 verses of chapter 21 and the first five of chapter 22. This is the word of God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, 
As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And from chapter 22, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on the other side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any accur- anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Before I pray, I just want to remind you that Revelation is not a code book. It's an impressionistic painting to fire up your imagination so that the whole truth that all the Bible communicates is pictured for us in this book. And it's meant to excite us to imagine the most amazing, glorious things we can possibly think about. That's what this book is about. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this book, uh, the whole thing. We thank you that it is your story. We thank you that it is the story of reality that tells us about creation and rebellion and redemption through Jesus and restoration. And as we spend this time thinking about restoration and thinking about the new heavens and new earth, Lord, we ask that you would fill us with hope, that you would fill us with excitement, that you would help us to understand that all of our sorrows, our griefs, our trials, our scars, our suffering, all have redemptive value. They mean something. If nothing else, they make us long for the world to come. But more than that, all those difficult things connect us to you, Jesus. For you're the one who has suffered for us. You're the one who has endured for us. You're the one who went through trials to bring us to God. So have your way with us as we sit under your word together this morning. Have your way with us and fill us with truth and hope. Holy Spirit, cause us to hear the good news and to rejoice in it. We pray through your blood, Jesus. We pray because you are alive. Amen. God always finishes what he starts. That's the point of Revelation. And because God finishes what he starts, that creates hope. God finishes what he starts, creates hope. That means that we can have hope, a living hope, a real hope. And that's what I hope to show you in Revelation 21 and 22 for the next three weeks. Today, we're going to be thinking about chapter 21 and 22 from a 30,000-foot view. 
And so if you're wanting me to get into all the details, I'm not going to do that today. Because we need to see the overarching big picture, the 30,000 foot view. It needs to get deep down into us. So when we get into some of the details, they'll actually make more sense. So this morning we're going to think about hope. And before we talk about our two things from the text, I want to give you a summary of chapters 1 through 20. And I want to do this quickly and as succinctly as I've been able to put together this week. So if you've missed out on the book of Revelation, if you have no idea what it means, here's hopefully about three minutes of uh, a summary of the book. And if you've heard Revelation before, this might be a little different from what you've heard. So buckle up. Chapter 1, God gives us a vision of Christ. You cannot read chapter 1 without being billboarded with the idea of Jesus and images and pictures and all that he is. Chapter 2 and 3, God writes letters to the churches. Chad preached on this a few weeks ago. Jesus is in the midst of his church, and he writes letters to his church. Chapters 4 and 5 bring us uh, to a place of absolute reorientation in which we are, we are reminded and it is pushed into us that there is one reference point for the entire universe, and that's the throne of God. And we are reoriented to the throne of God. That's chapter 4 and 5. Uh, after that, we have cycles of 7 in chapter 6 and following. We have cycles of 7. Uh, seals, trumpets, and then bowls. You might remember chapter 4 and 5 where we get the picture of the throne. There's this idea of the seal and who's worthy to open it up. Remember that? It's Jesus. Well, in the following chapters, we get to understand about these seven seals. And by the way, this cycle of seven, the seals and trumpets and bowls, they all build on one another. They're saying the same things. They're cycling through and getting us closer and closer to what we see in Revelation 21. But they fall just short of getting there because the whole book is building us to 21 and 22. So with the seals, we read that section and we learn that... Um, it's really hard to live in a fallen world. And that cycle ends at the throne. And guess what happens when we get to the throne through those seven seals? Silence. The next we have trumpets, seven trumpets. And they're telling us how God is communicating to his people that we're not just living in a really broken world, but the world in particular with the trumpets is very unstable. And guess where that cycle ends? The throne. And guess what we get there? Judgment. That God has a plan for everything. We get a little bit closer to 21 and 22. We're not quite at the new heavens, new earth yet. We're a little bit closer. We're beyond silence. We're to the judgment. And then with the seven bowls, we get God's perspective on sin and wickedness and rebellion. And he lays out what he thinks about it through the seven bowls. And guess where we end up? The throne. And it's not silent this time. And it's not judgment this time. We've gone a little bit further. Guess what we hear from the throne? It is finished. An echo of what Jesus says on the cross because that has been leading us throughout all of history, what he has accomplished. 
Well, after that in Revelation, what we get is the counterfeit. So in chapters 12 through 15, we learn about the counterfeit trinity. And then in in chapters 17 through 20, we learn that the counterfeit trinity is defeated. And guess what happens at the end of 20? Judgment takes place. Evil is finally and fully put away forever and ever. And there is celebration. And that prepares us for 21 and 22. You get it? Revelation is really not that hard of a book to understand. It's trying to get us to remember a vision of Jesus, the significance of the throne, the reality that evil never gets the last word, and it brings us to celebration and hope, which is where we are today. So two things for you today. Uh, The first one is this. Hope is actually written into the entire story. That's point number one, and that has two parts. Then point number two is this. We are hardwired for hope. We're hardwired for hope. You, you have innately a desire for hope, and you can't escape it. So those are the two things we're going to think about this morning. Um, The reality that hope is written into the entire story and that we're hardwired for hope. So let's jump in. Hope is written into the story, and we have two things to see here. Number one is this. The story ends, what we read in 21-22, the story ends, the whole story of Scripture, it ends with a new beginning. Did you catch it? How does Genesis 1-1 begin? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How does chapter 21, verse 1 begin? And I saw a new heavens and a new earth. Do you see what's happening there? What God is doing through John is he's trying to get us to understand that where the whole thing started in Genesis 1-1 with God creating the heavens and the earth is now going to be remade. Hope is written into every part of the story so that John is trying to trigger our brains and more our hearts as we read and begin to read chapter 21 so that we think about creation right here at the end because now it's going to be what it's supposed to be. God originally created the heavens and the earth and now we're going to get to see it in its fullest expression. You see, friends, Christianity and the Bible does not move from material things, heaven and, and trees and, and plants and mankind. Material. The Bible doesn't move, Christianity doesn't move from material things to ethereal things. So that we start off thinking about material stuff and the garden and then we move to the spiritual thing in which we end up in some ethereal spiritual realm. That's not the way God has created everything. It's not his intention. His intention is for us to understand that he wants material and spiritual things together. That he wants us to understand that he made us body and soul. He wants us to understand that heaven and earth belong together. 
so that we never fall into this trap of thinking, well, the whole story of Scripture is just this moving movement from material to immaterial. This is probably why we got a lot of uh, weird songs out there about heaven that are like, yeah, one day when we're all just somewhere up there uh, playing a harp, things like that, that we, that we become angels. No, 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 no. No, God wants us body and soul. You understand the reality of death, that the part that's so difficult is that our soul is ripped apart from our body. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. Our bodies are not meant to decay. They're meant to go on forever with our soul, with God, heaven and earth together. And John is taking us back to the beginning to say, don't forget whatever God set up from the beginning, it's gonna happen. You see, going to heaven is not, uh, it's not a state of mind. Um, going to heaven, it's not like you going on a vacation to the beach or to the mountains in which the scenery is a little bit better and people are a little bit nicer. That's not heaven. God is trying to get into us super deeply that he wants us to understand that what is material and what is immaterial belong together. And that's the only way that we will ever actually perfectly thrive and flourish. You see, Oftentimes we can think of heaven as not just this ethereal place, and that wrongly, I hope that's clear, but we can also think about heaven in terms of we no longer have responsibility. And I need you to understand, heaven is the intensification of responsibility. Heaven intensifies every responsibility that we will ever have. Heaven is the intensification of all that we are. It's just everything will be healed. So to carry out your responsibility to work and to rest and to play and to explore and to create and to worship, you still are gonna have, I'm still gonna have that responsibility. I'm gonna be out of a job because the chief shepherd's gonna be around. And some of you will be out of jobs too. But you know what's gonna happen is the intensification of all that we're supposed to be and do. That's what John's trying to communicate. We never get away from our responsibility to love God and love others and love place, ever. It's just now, my body's breaking down. It's just now, I gotta work and I gotta sweat through that and it, and it takes years off my life. You know this, right? It's you, you too. It's just now I have to work and there's all kinds of headaches and trouble. But one day, John's saying, all of our responsibilities will be intensified and the context in which we carry them out will be completely healed. John sees the new heavens and the new earth to take us back to Genesis 1 so that we look forward to the new Genesis 1-1 forever and ever. Well, what's connected with that? Remember, hope is built into the story. It has two things. We just looked at one. First one we just looked at is that the Bible concludes with a new beginning. Well, here's the second thing. 
what John writes here in Revelation 21 and 22, what God says to us through John is that everything that God said in Genesis is now complete. And if you start to hear overlap in my points and you start to hear overlap next week and the week after, you're going to because we can't get away from it. What John writes here is the completion of everything in Genesis. You see, in the beginning, there was a garden. And God's design for putting mankind in the garden is that they would flourish. And what it meant to flourish was that they, would, they were to have dominion over creation. You remember some of, these, some of this language? Be fruitful. Multiply. Name the animals. He even says in Genesis 2, tend and keep. So that the ideas communicated of managing and organizing and naming and creating so that things will fit together and flourish, so that people will grow, so that peoples will come, so that the earth would actually ultimately be filled with the glory of God because God is with us originally in the garden and as long as we continue to do life with him and what he says, then we would naturally, because we are created in his image, image his glory in all that we're doing with him right beside us. That was the original intent. And when you read Revelation 21 and 22, what do you see? Here are the images. A garden, a bride, right? And a new city. You notice that? Revelation 21 that we read together, there, there was a new city coming down. And what did the new city look like? A bride. And then you get in chapter 22 and you see a garden. Everything that John writes here in these chapters is the completion of what was set up in Genesis. All because, it's completed because of what Jesus has done. You see, what God gave Adam and Eve in the garden was what? Not just the design to flourish, but one of the ways in which they did that was marriage, right? Marriage was a picture ultimately of who? Jesus and his bride, the church. So now we have marriage begun in Genesis chapter 1, and now we have here in, in Revelation 21 and 22, the new city that looks like a bride. How does that happen? Well, Christ has come. And he came into this world to live a perfect life and die on the cross and rise again from the dead for his bride, to make his bride, the church, to make her beautiful. So what started in Genesis with man and woman now expands and matures to its fullest expression with Christ and his church. So that this amazing relationship is now come to full fruition. Now, I know all of us have hard marriages that are married. All of us do. No one has an easy marriage. If you do, please let me know because I need to spend a lot more time with you. Some of you have easier marriages than others, absolutely true. But if you're married, you have, it's hard. Anytime two people who are self-centered get together, it's hard. And if you think you're not self-centered, you're in more trouble than you realize. If you don't realize how self-centered you are. Beloved, the day is coming in which because of Jesus, he will perfect his bride. That means us. 
and all the good things that you see in your marriages, which I hope that you're able to cling to those and identify those and celebrate those, the day's coming in which the ultimate expression of marriage is just gonna pop for the entire creation. And there'll be celebration of, of Jesus celebrating his bride and, and us wondering what in the world are we doing because Jesus, you've done everything. And he'll say, he's saying, I know, I love you so much, I was willing to lay down my own life and suffer for you and die for you and I was even willing to rise from the dead so that there would be power in your life to change because I want to make you more beautiful. I want to make you into what you are supposed to be. And that's what John is communicating to us in Revelation 21 and 22. It's everything that was set up in Genesis has reached its completion, but that was just with marriage. You see, what naturally should have happened in Genesis and what actually has continued to happen even though sin entered the world was this. What we see everywhere, whether it's in our country or all over the world, as, uh, as people uh, populate and multiply, you go from a little garden that, that more people need more land and then they develop that land and things naturally go from rural to urban and city, right? So what do we see here in Revelation 21 and 22? The city, that what God has set up for flourishing has actually reached its culmination such that the city will come. And oh, by the way, we'll expand this in the next couple weeks. It's not so much that we're going to be raptured and vanished up there as heaven is coming down. Let that sink in. Heaven is coming down. The city of God, all of his people, and all of the glory of God is going to invade all of our cities. And his people are going to be there, and they're the bride. They're going to be adorned in all of their beauty, all because of what Christ has done. And that city will have been built, not because man could put it together. We rebelled. But because of Jesus, his kingdom is being built, and his kingdom cannot fail. There will never ever be anything in history that will overtake the gospel and his church. All the other kingdoms are going to come and go. Every other political, political system will rise and fall. You might be hard attached to one more than the other. Just let me, Here's a new flash, spoiler alert. It doesn't ultimately matter. Have your opinions. Just make sure they're way down here. Because what really matters is what is invincible. And that is the church of Jesus Christ. That is the message of the good news of the gospel. That will never be defeated. It is as invincible as God himself. So we see this garden in Genesis 1 turns into this big city. Genesis has been completed. What God designed has been come to its fullest expression because of Jesus. But then when you read Revelation 22, you notice what else you see? We've done marriage, we've done the city, and the other image that God gives us through John is uh, the garden. Chapter 22 talks about the garden, where you got the tree of life, 
and the, the river of life, and you got God with his people. Does that sound like Genesis 1? You see, if you doubted me before, perhaps this will make it more clear. Even though what God has designed from the beginning to move from a, from a garden into a city, even though God establishing marriage that would ultimately point to what Jesus is with his church, all because of what Jesus has done, beloved, heaven itself still functions like a garden. We will have to tend it and keep it and manage and organize and name and spread the glory of God for all eternity in this new heavens and new earth. God's communicating that by telling us it's still a garden. There's still so much to be explored. And you might wonder, well, how in the world can we go from a garden into a city, the kingdom is growing, because we are made to be eternal beings. And God is inexhaustible. And worship is to never end. And we were created to grow and delight and our joy to grow. And we were created to love one another and spread the glory of God using all of the gifts that he's given us. And that won't change. So even when the new heavens and new earth comes down, we will still feel like this is a garden and we get to explore and grow and love one another and, and exercise and worship and rest like we've never done in our lives. Does that sound like it's gonna be fun? Beloved, material and immaterial fit together. You gotta get that into you. We're not gonna vanish. Heaven's coming down and it's all gonna be made new. And whatever God says in Genesis 1 and 2 and following, he will absolute, absolutely finish what he started. And that means that you get to know and anticipate a joy and a love and an excitement that goes beyond what you could ever imagine. And remember, God tells that to you. I has not seen nor has, nor has it entered into, nor has man heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for his people. So even as glorious as this image is in Revelation 21 and 22, I don't have the words to tell you what it's gonna be like because it hasn't entered my heart yet. It hasn't even gotten my ear. I can't even hardly see it. Well, that's the first thing. Hope is written into the story. Here's the second. You are hardwired. We are hardwired for hope. And I don't know if you have any friends this way. I, I do. I have a handful of friends that are this way. They have no hope. And I don't, I don't mean that um, like in a, in a way that I'm superior to them. I'm saying as a philosophical commitment, they, they don't have hope. Like it's, it's a commitment. And Maybe this is best expressed. I heard this, I watched this video recently of a, maybe you've heard this guy, Richard Dawkins. He has no hope. I've heard him interviewed recently and he was asked point blank, Dr. Dawkins, what, what do you think is gonna happen when you die? He says, is it? Nothing. Nothing. Dawkins, Dr. Dawkins, you, you, don't, you don't think there's anything beyond death? Nope. 
So you think that life is ultimately meaningless? And his answer was basically yes. Now, that breaks my heart. I don't know if it breaks yours. But I mention this to you because you may have people in your life that don't have hope. And it could be because of something they've done or the shame is weighing them down. That could very well be true. But I'm talking about the kind of hope in which someone is committed philosophically to thinking that they actually have no hope and that life is meaningless. And I hope that your heart will break for your friends. And I hope that you'll pray for me as I interact with mine. Because I want them to have hope. Because I can't imagine how much effort it takes to try to think that we shouldn't have hope. That's an unbelievable amount of emotional capital and intellectual strength to try to argue that we have no hope and that life is just meaningless because we're hardwired for hope. Have you ever thought about the significance of hope in our lives? The significance of what you think will happen in the future and how that affects your now. That's an oversimplification of hope. What you think is going to happen in the future and how that affects your now. You ever thought about the significance of that? I'm ripping this illustration from somebody else because it has such a profound impact on me. Here's the illustration of how the hope for the future impacts, profoundly impacts your now, your present. So two guys have the same job. Whatever you think is the most boring job in the world, that's the one I'm talking about. It's, it's, a, it's the most boring job you could ever imagine. Two guys have the exact same job. They work 30 hours a week, exact same 30 hours a week, nothing more, nothing less. Same job, 30 hours a week, and they only have to work for six months. That's it. That's, all, that's as long as this job is. And at the end of the six months, one of the guys is going to get paid $8,000. And the other guy is going to get paid $8 million. And the guy that pays $8,000 gets paid $8,000 at the end of six months. By the end of the week, he is thinking, this is so boring. I hate this. I could make more than this if I worked somewhere else. I'm not sure I want to do this anymore. This isn't worth it. And the guy that's going to get $8 million after six months of working 30 hours a week with the most boring job, He is ecstatic. I can't wait. In just six months, I'm going to get $8 million for working 30 hours a week for not that long? This is amazing. Hope profoundly affects your now. What you think is going to happen in the future profoundly affects your present. We are hardwired for hope. And oftentimes when we read the book of Revelation, we have gotten a really faulty sense of hope. Here's what hope has looked like oftentimes. And maybe this hasn't happened to you, but I bet it has. Oftentimes what we've heard from the book of Revelation has pretty much ended up like this. Anytime something starts happening in the the world that has to do with a war, or any time in particular that something happens with Israel, our immediate response is, do you think we're getting close? 
Because somehow we've been taught that Revelation is this code book that's worked out this map of events in some type of almost chronological order so that we take whatever bad things seem to be happening and we try to map that onto biblical prophecy. And so when any bad thing happens, especially to Israel, we immediately start thinking, oh, we, we're, do you think we're almost there? And what comes with that is this unbelievable fear so that God's people who have been taught revelation this way actually live their lives being afraid of almost everything. And that's led to God's people wanting to grab power in certain places politically and otherwise. It's led to God's people being escapist and withdrawn from culture because they don't want to be contaminated. They don't want to be involved with anything that's compromised. It's led to this fear-based way of life so that you're not sure if we're really getting close to the end because if we are, then we need to get really serious about our lives because this could be it. And I've experienced this in my own life. When some of my friends realized I had cancer, you know what some of them said to me? Well, Dave, I bet you going through cancer has meant that you're really looking forward to the rapture. Actually, I was like, no. Because the expectation of what God communicates to his people, especially through revelation, the expectation is not escaping. The book of Revelation is not written to create a fear-based people that are looking at current events and trying to interpret them through the lens of some type of prophecy centered on some little nation of Israel that leads to the hope that we get to escape. That is not the hope that we need. That's not the hope that God gives us. The hope that we need is this. We need a hope that will produce a normalizing of sacrifice in our lives. The hope that God gives us in Revelation is that we should expect to live lives of sacrifice. The hope that God gives us in the book of Revelation is that we would have the endurance to undergo unimaginable trials. The hope that God gives us in Revelation is not just that we should anticipate sacrifice and be able to endure trials. It's that in the midst of all of that, we would have joy. Because God gives us a joy that cannot be touched by our circumstances. And if you wonder, well, where in the world do you get that, Dave? I'm glad you asked. His name is Jesus. The expectation that Jesus had in his life is that sacrifice would be a normal part of it. The expectation and hope that Jesus had in his life is that he would be willing to endure unimaginable trial and suffering. And the hope that Jesus had in his life through sacrifice and enduring trials is what? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Beloved, that is what Jesus' hope was for living in a fallen world. And as we receive him, and as he defines our lives through his perfect life and my imperfect life, his perfect death and mine that I'm scared to death of, 
and his resurrection that I look forward to in him one day, his way of life, his hope that he has is built into me and to you. Does that make sense? Your hope is not escaping. Your hope is to grow such that when you're called upon to sacrifice, you recognize it as normal for living in a fallen world. And when God calls upon us to endure trials, unimaginable trials that you can't even fathom, you're able to do it because Jesus did it first. And in the midst of all that, there's a joy in your life that those circumstances cannot touch. And in an unbelievable way, God actually works more joy into us as we sacrifice and endure trials. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the hope that we need. Not that we're expecting things to get worse and worse and worse. And then at the last minute, we, get, we escape out of here. That's not it. You see, for the hope that we've often received from the book of Revelation, the bad kind of hope, that view thinks that the victory of Jesus is all in the future. That he came and did something, but he didn't really accomplish anything. And so until he comes back, we're not really sure. But victory is all in the future. And beloved, the hope that you need and the hope that God offers you is that the victory of Jesus is in the past. That he actually accomplished something in his life and through his death and in his resurrection. He accomplished something. He even started to defeat the enemy, our great enemy, death and Satan himself. And our victory is anchored in the past. And because of Christ's victory in the past, we march forward victoriously to the ultimate victory in the future. Does that make sense? So no one is downplaying the victory of Christ ultimately over the entire world. But beloved, I'm telling you, it's because it's never been in doubt. And the reason why you can go through trials and you can endure hardships and suffering and you can find a joy in the midst of those is because that's exactly what Christ has done for you to give you hope. That's why what we're about to do is to victoriously come to the ultimate victory. We're about to come to the feast that is a foretaste of a better feast yet to come. You see, that's what brings us to the table. 